If you have a Bible with you, could you find Matthew chapter 21? As you probably know, this is called Palm Sunday. And uh, the Sunday before the Easter weekend, the beginning of the Passion Week. And it is appropriate that we look at this Matthew's account of what happened on this Sunday of Passion Week uh, today. So we're going to look at Matthew 21 and verses 1 to 11. Okay, Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now this incident, which is called the triumphal entry, is, as I said, the beginning of the Passion Week events, leading up to Jesus' crucifixion on Friday and the resurrection on the Easter morning, next Sunday, when we remember it, three days, the third day after Jesus was crucified. And actually, as you've already heard, this is a very important week for us here in Winchester. The Passion will be played out through Winchester on Friday afternoon from 6pm to about 9pm. It starts at Oram Zaba and it goes right through. There's a major area around the law courts and the Great Hall where a number of the scenes are worked through of the, of the trial and, and, and then it goes on down to end at the cathedral. Now, Marion and I joined the prayer walk the other Sunday and uh, I found my own faith stirred as we just prayed our way round the uh, route, or most of it. And uh, it, it reminded me that this is going to be quite an important and wonderful event. The other thing that provoked me was hearing the actor, Israel, who's, who's, who's going to be acting Jesus, hearing him at Mission Winchester. I know some of you were there, but probably only a tiny minority relatively. And he really is a very switched on, fired up Christian. He's not a nominal Christian at all. Uh, he preached for an hour and 20 minutes, which, I'm, by the way, I'm not going to do this morning. And, and that's very unmission Winchester-like. And he, he was prophetic and it was powerful. The guy loves the Lord deeply. I think he's been part of the leadership or even involved in the church planting of a, of a, of a black sort of uh, church in, in Brighton, you know, black gospel sort of field church. And he's a very fired up Christian. And uh, it, being in the prayer meeting beforehand, it was good hearing him pray. So I think it's an important event and I think we've got the right people in place for it and uh, God will be with us on it. And I'd encourage you to go along and support and listen. And if you're not a Christian or not sure, it's another ideal opportunity to find out a bit more about Jesus. 
But I want to talk about the first incident that week, this morning, what we say is the triumphal entry. Now, actually, the whole of the idea of the, the, the fact that a third of our Gospels are about Jesus last week is strange. Perhaps we get used to it. Maybe you get used to it. If you were uh, not a churchgoer, you've been brought up in Sunday school or maybe went to school and, and heard the stories about Easter. And, and maybe we all get used to it and don't think about it. But really, isn't it quite odd that we have the Gospels accounts of Jesus' life and I'm not going to say a majority, that's wrong. About a third of the accounts are about Jesus' death and the last week of his life. No wonder we need to ask the question, who is this Jesus? What is this about? And that's the sort of question that people have been asking about him right since he first came to earth. And it's in this passage that we read this morning. In verse 10, when Jesus came into Jerusalem and the whole place was stirred up, people were asking the question, who is this? And that's what I want to spend a few minutes talking about with you this morning. Let's look at the fundamental question first and deal with it because it needs to be dealt with. Sometimes people will say, well, there is no such, there was no such person as Jesus. Apparently, the communist Russian dictionary used to describe Jesus as a mythical figure who never existed. Well, you need to know that that is absolutely and totally untrue. There is no evidence at all to suggest that there never was a Jesus. All the evidence is that there really was a Jesus of Nazareth. And no serious historian would contradict that claim today. So we need to say that very loud and clear. We also perhaps ought to say something at this point about the reliability or the authenticity of our accounts of Jesus. Now, you may not like what's in the Gospels. You may find it provoking. You may find it hard to believe and things like that. But one thing you should never say, because you can't say, is, well, this is a lot of mythical ideas thought up hundreds of years later, and who knows what the people at the time really thought or wrote. We do know very well. The New Testament is one of the most reliable ancient documents you can find. We know it's authentic. We know what's in our New Testament is what these people wrote. And we know that they wrote it very, very soon after the acts themselves were were performed, after Jesus did the things he did. We know that on the very simple criteria that we use for any ancient document. Two major things are always considered. How many manuscripts have you got? So you can compare them all and see which, you know, get the accuracy right. And how near to the times they're recording, how near are the oldest manuscripts we've got? Now, if you get something very near to the time that it's writing about, and if you've got many manuscripts and they all agree, that's very good when you're assessing the authenticity of an ancient document. Just to give you an example, one example, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars... We've only got ten sort of ancient complete copies and the oldest one is from AD 900. But actually Caesar wrote it in BC 50 or 55. So the oldest, so the gap between when Caesar wrote it and the oldest one we've got is 950 years. It's quite a long time. Long time for things to be changed a bit. And also, we've only got ten copies. But nobody really disputes much about Jesus, Julius Caesar or what he got involved in the Gallic Wars. We realise he put a little spin on his accounts of it, but that's another matter. Nobody gets 
and says there was no Julius Caesar. Now, with the New Testament, we have over 20,000 copies of the New Testament in Greek and in Latin. And the earliest complete manuscripts date from about 130 AD, bearing in mind they were written between 40 and 100 AD. So the earliest complete manuscript of the New Testament is just 30 to 50 years after it was written. And we have fragments or parts of the New Testament that come from the very time when the people were still alive who wrote it, during the first hundred years. On any test at all, the accuracy of the New Testament in terms of we've got what they wrote and we know what the original writers were trying to say, we've got it. You may have problems with what they say, but there's no doubt about it. On every basis, whether it's the New Testament's testimony itself or other historical writings like Josephus and Tacitus, on every basis we have absolute certainty that there was a Jesus of Christ, a Jesus of Nazareth, and actually we can say with certainty that he caused a great stir in Jerusalem when Pilate was there as governor and ended up being crucified under the combined sort of uh, planning of the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans who were disturbed by what he was doing and saying and were trying to keep the Jews under. We know that the main events of the Passion Week happened, but actually we need to know who is this and what was going on. When you sometimes read these four accounts, you might, the four accounts, because all the four Gospels give you an account of the triumphal entry, you might sometimes, if you're rather sharp, look and say, ah, oh, wait a minute, they vary a little bit. You get a bit more detail in one than the other. In actual fact, it's Mark who is very clear in his account that Jesus rode on the foal of the donkey, a little young donkey, and that it had never been ridden before. And he's very clear that you know that. And sometimes people say, does that mean the Bible is full of contradictions? No, it doesn't. It actually adds to its authenticity. I've had people come to me over the years sometimes and, and sort of point out these differences. Like, ah, in that account of the triumphal entry, it mentions that, but it doesn't there. Aha, you know, like as though no one's ever spotted that for 2,000 years. And like as though the people who actually compiled the New Testament didn't notice and after they put it all together, they go, oh, blow, those two don't quite agree on the detail. No, they brought together the authentic accounts that were given to them. And frankly, it's no more profound at one level than this. The accounts emphasise different things, like any four accounts of an event will do. Some people remember, and some of these accounts literally are the memory of, say, Peter or John. Some of these people remember a detail that others don't. And the Holy Spirit gives us the four accounts to get the whole picture. And when we put it all together, we get the full story. There aren't contradictions, there are just different emphases. And then sometimes the writer themselves want to make sure you get one point. For example, Luke and John make a lot more of the fact that the Pharisees were very jealous and stirred up by Jesus' triumphal entry. Whereas Matthew and Mark don't mention it much. Now that's not that there's any contradiction, it's that one pair of writers want you to know this was the beginning of the end and things were really getting stirred up and despite the people's great delight in Jesus the religious leaders were already jealous and angry it's very simple but it also adds to the authenticity of the New Testament if this was some phony document some contrived thing 
people would no doubt make it sound very elaborate and, and, and also make it all harmonise in a precise way. It isn't. It's four separate accounts of a real event in real history involving a real person, Jesus Christ. But who is he? That's the question. Now, this, this incident itself gives us tantalising and interesting clues. You see, Jesus appears to have a special knowledge of things. He seems to know about these uh, animals, for example. And he seems to have an insight into how the people, presumably owning the animals, will respond to the disciples and what the disciples are to say. He also seems to have almost a calm authority over the animal themselves. I've heard a story of someone who was persuaded about the unique nature of Jesus just reading this uh, account because they were, by nature, they, broke, they, they worked with horses and, and mules and asses and they, they broke animals in. And the idea that Jesus could actually sit on an animal that had never been ridden by anybody before and the whole thing is just calmly walking along and taking him into Jerusalem was quite astounding for that particular person. But yet that is what happened because this Jesus had something about him that was rather unusual. He seemed to have insights into what the human beings were doing, frankly, the people who owned the mule and the disciples, but he also seemed to have a calm control even of creation itself. This authority comes out all the way through this story. When the Pharisees are sort of telling him to rebuke the people for praising and worshipping, he calmly tells them, no, don't do that. If, you don't, if they don't praise, the stones will cry out. And it's a sort of strange phrase, but it's almost like a, it's got a sort of weight to it and a sort of authority. There's these little hints all the way through. There's other things about this. Jesus receives the praise of the people. And that's quite a big thing. They are saying big things. They're saying Hosanna, which means save us or be our saviour. They're saying it's, it's God's Messiah turning up. They're making big claims with their praise and their worship. But Jesus not only accepts it, he actually defends it when the Pharisees criticise it. Jesus clearly sees himself as fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. The one that's referred to in verse 5 about your king coming, riding on a donkey, the foal of an ass. He sees himself as God's Messiah, the son of David. And yet, this is what's so tantalising. He's nothing like what these people were perhaps expecting or what we might expect. He doesn't come in like even King David would have done, as a warrior king with an army and with weapons all round him. He's certainly not a man of war. He's not riding a great war horse or something. He's riding a donkey's foal. It's just a demonstration of total humility. He doesn't have around him the, the, the movers and shakers, the leaders of, of the religious establishment or the political establishment or the intelligentsia. He's got ordinary people and actually children are praising him. We'll find that out in some of the accounts. And are particularly at ease around him and pra- praising him. It's a very different sort of kingdom that this king is king of. This is the whole thing about Jesus. He is a mystery. He is clearly a real man. He's humble. He's loving. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of wisdom. He felt sorrow. He felt tiredness. He felt pain. 
But he clearly is more than that. And the Bible claims, and I believe, and Christians believe, that he was God become man. God manifest in the flesh. He actually behaved in some ways quite extraordinarily. He used terms like I am, or actually in, in Mark's account of um, this, this incident, he says, say that the Lord needs it. Well, it's a capital L and it, it seems to be a sort of quite a weighty phrase he's using for himself. He uses the phrases that are used for God. I am a Lord. He, he uses those at times. His teaching centers on himself. And he says bold things like, you know, it was written, but I say unto you. Giving himself an authority that's similar to the, to the Old Testament in this case, and to Moses and to God's word. He actually accepts worship, as he does in this incident, and doesn't say, no, 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 don't worship me. And he claimed to forgive sins. And sometimes we can accept that without thinking about it. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, says something about Jesus' claim to forgive sins, which I think is well put, and it's better to read him than to try and put it in my words. And he says this about it. One part of the claim, this is Jesus' claim, tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offences against himself. You tread on my toes and I forgive you. You steal my money, I forgive you. But what would we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes or for stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we would give to this conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all the offences. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as silliness and conceit, unrivaled by any other character in history. That's right. Jesus forgave sins, which was a godlike role. Yet for all of these amazing things, taking the title I am and Lord, and you could say, oh, was he very arrogant and offensive and odd? No. He was winsome and gracious and humble. People found him easy to be with. Children crowded round. Women found that he felt safe with him and, and honoured and elevated by him. People of all types were attracted. He performed extraordinary miracles. But they weren't magic tricks drawing attention to himself. They were genuinely healing and delivering and helping people and often done very modestly and don't tell anyone. There was stuff going on that blessed and released and healed sick and bound up people. He was unselfish, kind and courageous. His teaching was outstanding. And even unbelievers will often call him things like a wonderful man and will speak highly of him. People who don't believe in him. So we've got an inherent problem because one part of him seems to look as though he was 
well, mad or bad, as, as Lewis himself puts it again elsewhere, that he was either a lunatic or an evil man because he's talking like God and taking all these things to himself. But another part is clearly full of grace and truth and love. And, and not only the, the testimony of the time, but the testimony of, of his followers then and beyond for 2,000 years would suggest that this was no phony at the origins of this faith. We're left with that famous choice, that he's either mad or bad or he's God, which he claimed to be. God become man. And the evidence is that the latter, that he's God, manifest in the flesh. But who is he? What is he doing? What's he doing here? What's he doing here on the triumphal entry? Actually, this particular incident seems out of character. Prior to this, Jesus had shunned publicity. As I said, he healed lepers and usually quite often said, you know, almost don't tell anyone. Kept it very low profile. He avoided the crowds. And one or two times when they wanted to make him a king, he hurried away and got right out of the way. But now, on this incident, he publicly rides into Jerusalem. He consciously fulfills messianic prophecies, as we've seen. He willingly and openly receives the praise and worship of the crowd with cries of save us and be our saviour. He publicly goes to the temple. And at the end of Mark's account, there's this wonderful, again, sort of weighty phrase that he went into the temple, he looked around at everything, and then he withdrew on that day. What he did, if you read the account, is the next day he went back to the temple and really turned the place over. Turned over the tables of the moneylenders, and you clearly feel on that first day there was the eye of God's authority looking at the mess there, really. And when he did that, turning over the tables, he said things like, this is my father's house. It should be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. He made a fuss, you could say, a healthy, righteous fuss, but nevertheless, he drew attention to himself. Things were happening. This was very different from the way Jesus had appeared to behave up to this. So what is he doing at this point. What is he doing here? Well, we can play on words a bit because what he's doing here is related to what he was doing here at all. What is Jesus doing here on earth? And what he's doing here on this day called Palm Sunday is related to that. Because Jesus Christ came to die. He actually came to die. He came with the express purpose of going to the cross. The whole thing was leading up to a climax. It was not to be any death. It was to be a death on a cross. It was to be a death nailed, pierced hands and feet and side to a tree, if you like, hung on a tree. That was fulfilment of prophecy. Cursed is him who hangs on a tree. It was a death caused by the Jews and Gentiles combined, by people, not just the Jews. It was a humiliating, cursed, hideous public death. You know, there had been earlier times when people had wanted to kill Jesus and they just had no power to do so. For example, the Pharisees wanted to stone him on one occasion, just walked away. Another time, a group of people wanted to throw him over a cliff. Again, just walked away. There was no issue because there's a sense here that Jesus is in control of what's happening to him. Jesus is actually moving to a plan that is not that of the human beings around him. He is almost provoking and accelerating things at this point. Things are now ready. 
He is ready for the climax of the ages. Things will now be as they have to be. This is the death he and his father had planned from eternity past. Now he's going public. Now he will be the saviour, but not a way that these people understand. He's going to fulfil their cry, Hosanna, save us. He's going to do it, be our saviour. He will be their saviour. But he knows it will be in a way they don't dream of, really. He's going to save them from their sins. He's going to bear away the wrath of God that is against all of us because of our failures and weaknesses and sins and rebellion against God. He's going to be, in the words of the Old Testament's prophecy in Isaiah, pierced for our transgressions. His stripes are going to lead to our healing. The things that are going to be beaten on his back will lead to us being healed and delivered. He's going to fulfil all of that. These are the big issues that are going on. Jesus is moving towards what is not not really anything short of a cosmic climax. It's a, it's a clash of kingdoms. It's a delivery of men and women from the wrath of God and also from bondage to Satan's dark kingdom. Because our sins leave us legally in the hold of Satan. Not only our own folly, but we have demonic holds in our lives sometimes as a result of our rebellion and sin. Well, Jesus is going to remove all that and set us free. Free from condemnation, free from judgment, but also free from bondage to evil. And Jesus is in charge of what's happening. Jesus did not die because he couldn't avoid death and because things went wrong that week. Often people sort of portray it like that. That's not what happened. He died because he was willing to offer himself as a sacrifice for sins. He went willingly to the cross. He didn't it wasn't appealing to him. He, tra- he, he agonised as he knew what, what he faced. But he willed that he would do what his father wanted. He went willingly to the cross. Out of his love for us and out of his obedience to his father. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, Lord. Thank you, you did go willingly to the cross for me. And so this event shows us that Jesus has begun to move out from one phase of his life, shall we say, into the climax before what he came. He's making things public. He's beginning to release the events that he knows will lead to the climax of what we call Good Friday and Easter morning with the resurrection. So where does that leave us then with all of this? Well, I think there's an amazing truth that's also in a way hinted at or hinted at from my, from my point of view in this passage and it's this, that Jesus fulfilled prophecy all the way through what, what goes on through the Easter story from Palm Sunday right through to the end. He is fulfilling prophecy after prophecy that you can point to. Even Psalm 22 that Claire read to us about being pierced, hands and side pierced and um, feet pierced. That, that was fulfilled. And, it, and the strange thing was that the actual crucifixion process of, of execution, which is pretty hideous, was only performed by the Romans for a, a certain period of history. But even more strangely than that, the Jews were allowed to execute people for blasphemy for most of the time that Rome ruled uh, Palestine. For most of the time, the Pharisees could have taken Jesus and stoned him. But there was a short window of history when, because of unrest, the Romans took away, if you like, these sort of rights from the Jews. And so the Pharisees, in order to get someone executed, had to use the Roman authorities. They were the only people allowed to execute. 
at that moment. And it was only a short period of history. And that's why the whole thing happens the way it does at Easter. But that means that it's not just Jews killing Jesus, it's mankind representatively, Jew and Gentile. It also means he has to hang on a cross. It also means that no bone is broken, which is what happened when people were stoned. It means though he is pierced, hands and side. Now all of these things are prophesied in the Old Testament. And it is incredible how it all lines up with the events of what we call Easter. But here's another challenge. For every prophecy about Jesus' first coming, there are perhaps half a dozen, some people say there are eight, about his second coming. In other words, there are many prophecies in the Bible, more prophecies, that this same Jesus will one day return. And that's quite an interesting and sobering thing to come to at Easter. Because we can still look back at this and say, oh, this is an interesting historical event. There's no question it's a real event. There's no question there was a real Jesus. There's no question he really died on the cross. I would say, and so would most Christians, there's no question he really rose again, which is part of the whole story. And there's a lot of evidence for that. But where is he now? And has the story finished? No, it hasn't. (laughs) Now, this Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's in the presence of God. But the Bible tells us, repeatedly, more often, as I say, actually than the first coming, there are prophetic words that this same Jesus will return. Basically, we will all see him one day. Everybody in this room one day will see Jesus. And I think the challenge for us is in what state of mind will we see him? Will we see him as our Lord and Saviour who we've already committed our lives to. We already thanked him for dying for us, which is what we can do right now, and many of us have. We've already said, thank you for saving me. Thank you for taking away my sin. I want to follow you. You're my Lord. You're my saviour. I'm looking forward to the day when I see you. Or will we actually be extremely troubled and maybe embarrassed and even frightened because suddenly this one who we scorned and said, well, he's nothing to me, just some mythical figure, whatever we dismissed it as, One day we'll see him face to face. We need to sort out now what we think about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Is he all the things that the Bible says about him and that I've been saying about him and that Christians say about him? Or is he just a funny little aberration in history, a bit of a quirky character? We need to think about it. I really encourage you to think about it over Easter. I encourage you, if you're not a Christian or you're not sure, to really give time to think, who is Jesus and is he anything to me? I encourage you, if you're a local person, to go to the Passion and look at it and think, who is this they're acting out? What is this about? If you're local, please come here next Sunday morning when we'll be talking again about Jesus. Or come on an Alpha course. We have Alpha courses here. We start one actually on the 4th of April, which is a Friday. There's a little red invite. You're welcome to take one away. I think they're probably at the back there somewhere. Would they be easily found? Can someone nod and assure me that? Yeah. Please take one away because on the 4th of April we'll have a a pre-alpha sort of um, party introduction thing here where we'll tell you about the alpha course. But I'll tell you a bit now, but you can come along and enjoy that. Basically, it's 10 weeks in which you can think about these issues. No pressure to make decisions quickly, but to think about Jesus, to hear a bit more about him, to think about Christianity. I think you need to do that. This character is too important for you to have no real uh, opinion on it. Haven't really thought about it. 
haven't really explored it. His impact on world history is astronomical. He never wrote a book. He never travelled outside a country about the size of Wales. That, that's Palestine in the Middle East. He, he didn't, uh, you know, he, did, he wasn't a, a mover and shaker in, in human terms. He wasn't a, a major figure in the Roman Empire. You know the story. And yet the impact is astronomical. What are we all doing here over 2,000 years later? And many of us would say with absolute conviction, we love Jesus. <laughs> we love him. We haven't seen him, but we love him. We know him. He is our saviour and Lord. There is more going on than just a historical figure. He is the Son of God, the Saviour. He has risen again and he sent his Spirit to bring the whole reality of that into our lives as we own him as our Lord and Saviour. And he will come back one day. You know, world history will not end just by chance. No more than it started by chance. God will decide the end. History won't end because human beings just make such a mess of the world that in the end they destroy it. I don't think actually that God will be ignorant of what we're doing to our planet. We are actually destroying it through our greed and selfishness. But I believe God is in control of it. And it will only end when God decides it. It's a bit like the Passion Week really. Evil people made their own choices. Pilate made his own choice. The Pharisees made their choices. The crowd changed from Hosanna to crucify him within a week. These were people doing the wrong thing, greedy, selfish, easily manipulated, making their wrong choices and totally culpable. But God had a plan that overruled it all. God, and we've seen Jesus, knew what was going to happen. He knew about the donkey. He knew a lot more than that. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was facing. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. And God knew where it was all going. And his plans were working out. This was not in the control of human beings, ultimately. The sovereignty of God was at work. It will be the same at the second coming of Jesus. We will make stupid decisions. We will probably begin to destroy our world. We will probably do some foolish things that we think probably already are doing. But God will know where it's going. And at his moment, he will intervene and Jesus will return. And history will be wrapped up. And actually there will be a time of reckoning. And we will need to know where we stand with regard to this amazing person, Jesus Christ. So it's a good time of year. I like Easter. Actually I prefer it to Christmas. Because it's the nitty gritty. And actually it's probably more accurate by the way. Because these things did occur in the spring about this time. We know when Passover is. Sometimes we're not sure when Jesus was born in terms of the year, time of year, we're pretty sure about this one. This is an authentic time to remember Jesus and what he came to earth to do. Please do it. Amen?